Welcome friends on the Barricades. This is the second part of our show where we discuss with Paul Jay, Canadian-American journalist and filmmaker, me, Maria Cernat, and the co-host, Boyan Stanislavski. Thank you for being here with us, Boyan. Hey, hey. Are discussing and have had last time an interesting talk about uh, Russia, China, and the US foreign policy. Right now, I want to ask something different because there was a lot of enthusiasm, and we even had an event where we discussed with scholar Albena Zbanova from Kent University about the election of Kamala Harris. Me, as a feminist, uh, witness a lot of people being extremely enthusiastic of seeing the first person of color, a woman, being elected as uh, vice president in the United States. And everybody cheered up and gathered around this event and said this is a true progressive move. Now I want to ask Paul Jay, from his perspective, was this a really a progressive move? Do you see Kamala Harris pushing for free maternity leave or anti-discrimination laws and things that would eventually give us reason uh, to link that enthusiasm to something substantial? Or was it just a PR stunt? What do you think about that, Bob? <laughs> uh... Well, it's kind of, the answer is kind of yes and no. Um, it's the same kind of question, was it a progressive thing when Barack Obama got elected president? I would say it was an achievement of the American people that they would vote for an African American to be president. Uh, it's the same kind of thing for the American people to get over such, uh, you know, hundreds of years of systemic racism, I shouldn't say get over it, but in spite of, mm -hmm. um, to elect the Biden-Harris ticket, uh, even though you know, she's an Asian, African-American. Uh, it shows a change uh, uh, in, in the deep racism in the American culture, and I, I think that's a positive thing. As an individual, if she wasn't a black woman, would we be cheering her. No, she'd be a, a normal centrist corporate Democrat. And uh, a normal centrist corporate Democrat, to my mind, I know a lot of those, some of the left anyway, I shouldn't say a lot, some of the left think there's no difference between them and Trumpian forces. I'm one that actually thinks there is a significant difference. Uh, but that being said, uh, no, I don't think she'll do much more <laughs> for women than any other Democratic administration has done, which is something. I, you know, if you go through actual pieces of legislation uh, that at least, you know, when, since under Obama, it was hard for him to pass anything because of the way the Republicans controlled Congress. Um, but, yeah, they would do something if they could. Uh, will she do something more because she's a, a woman? I don't think so. I'm not sure we've seen many examples of women leaders of these kinds of countries that have done many, much more for women, nor did Barack Obama do anything uh, more than any typical corporate Democrat for black Americans. Uh, if anything, he might have done a little less. He was so worried about being accused of catering to African Americans. Oh, so you gave, uh, this is exactly my impression. I think it, it looks well, 
But as one Romanian Marxist feminist said, Sofia Nadejde, if rich men don't do anything for poor men, why would you imagine that rich women would do more for poor women? <laughs> Because uh, this is the difference. So why would you imagine that uh, if she's a woman, then she's going to do something more? Now I will turn to uh, Boyan because I think it's his turn to ask his question. Maybe he would be interested in something else, but since we had this event and we discussed it pre pretty thoroughly with our guests, I thought it would be interesting to see whether that initial enthusiasm actually translated and transformed into something more substantial. So please, Boyan, go right, ahead. Well, I, yeah, I would actually be interested if there is any enthusiasm at all in America at the moment, because in Eastern Europe, for example, there is no enthusiasm. There's only apathy, there's demoralization, there's frustration, there's all kinds of things which basically lead to, to some societies, you know, imploding, basically, like the Bulgarian society, which is just, you know, uh, I don't want to go into that right now, but uh, it, there are, you know, societies in Eastern Europe, which after 30 years of the civilizational disaster, Uh, you know, the restoration of capitalism after 1989 are on the verge of complete collapse. Like, you know, Ukraine, Bulgaria, Moldova, Romania to a large extent, I would argue as well. So, uh, and, and you know, enthusiasm is the last thing that, that you could uh, link to, to, to the situation, to social, cultural, whatever, civilizational, if you like, situations in our countries. And I'm wondering whether in America it's, it's different because, you know, America has always been our, uh, well, it was like, a shining example like every everybody's wealthy in america everything's fantastic everything's of quality everybody's happy you know american dream which yeah well some argue that it turned into american nightmare now or maybe it has always been like that i'm not sure but uh, it, it, you know is there is there an element of this is there is there something inspirational happening in american politics is there something uh that that you for example see as 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 uh as a Well, point of reference for, for everything you said in our previous segment, like we need socialist democratic governments that are going to take over, plan the economy, you know, do all the things that are necessary uh, to be carried out in order to, uh, you know, to move forward from, from this uh, verge of, of, of the cliff, right? Uh, there's some encouraging things happening. Um, since the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign, the previous one, he really made a big push calling on people to run for office, uh, progressive, socialist, uh, and such. Um, and a lot did. Uh, it's really started a movement of people running at all at state levels and national levels for office. And there's been some breakthroughs. Uh, the, uh, in, in New York State, there's been some, I think, significant breakthroughs at the level of the state assembly. Uh, you know, everyone knows AOC and Congress. Um, Uh, the, you know, some of the left is critical that some of these elected representatives don't go far enough, but uh, I think th there has to be something realistic about when you're in the heartland of the empire. Uh, there has to be some sense of realism about what's, what's possible. And the United States has the ability, which not many other countries have, that at times of economic crisis, if they need to, they can throw trillions of dollars at it, which is what they're doing. You know, this infrastructure plan, the other bailout plans, you know, they may up, you know, by the time this is all done, they may have shoved $10 trillion into the economy. Uh, how many other countries can do that? You know, the countries that, you know, of Eastern Europe, they get into, you know, the same kind of predicaments from uh, the consequence of global capitalism. 
but they can't throw trillions of dollars at their own economy and, and expect anyone to loan the money ever again. Well, the United States doesn't, so far at least, doesn't have to worry about that. Um, so uh, the situation in the U.S. for the majority of people is not yet desperate. Um, and even, I would say, for the majority of people, the 75 million people that voted for Trump, uh, I would say most of them aren't desperate. Uh, on the other hand, profound disillusionment uh, of at least half the country in what America supposedly is. But I don't think it's just the people that voted for Trump, because I think it, perhaps even a majority of the people that voted for Biden didn't do it because they believed or were enthusiastic. They just wanted to stop Trump. So you got an enormous uh, the vast majority of the people that have lost all faith in institutions, in Congress, uh, in journalism, uh, you name it, uh, th there's a profound lack of enthusiasm. Um, on the other hand, <clears throat> in the United States, what's different perhaps in, in compared to Eastern Europe is the point I'm making at the beginning. Economically, most people are actually doing okay. Uh, the pandemic, of course, caused a lot of suffering, but the American government was able to send you know, a lot of money directly to people's bank accounts. It wasn't nearly enough for people who are poor to begin with, uh, people that were unemployed. But you've got a ridiculous spike in the housing market now. Uh, housing prices are through the roof. In fact, if you, if you don't have, if you didn't make money during the pandemic, um, you can't get into that market at all. But a lot of people made money, even people with modest investments in the stock market have made a killing. A lot of people made money at during this last period. So there's no enthusiasm, but there's, there's also no, not a lot of desperation. Now, of course, amongst African-Americans and Latinos in the inner cities, it's desperate. Um, many cities, uh, the working class, uh, is ho white working class is poor and without jobs or uh, underpaid, uh, lousy service jobs. So yeah, there are millions and millions of people who are desperate, but it's not the majority. Okay, uh, but uh, yeah, can I, can I just ask how does it speak to the events perhaps of the beginning of the year, the 6th of January, and, and uh, perhaps you could elaborate on that, because many people here at least, and if you read the, you know, our media here in Eastern Europe, then... Uh, Pretty much everybody just translates whatever uh, you know is appears in the American media or whatever other Western media like French or German, which is pretty much coherent explanation that you know fascism, Trump, and 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 you know right wing lumpen storming the parliament. This is the end of everything. If we don't stop it, we're going to fall and we're going to fall apart, and the world will end, and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, some people who are trying who are trying to look at it a bit more analytically. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether they're right, but they, they, that's, that's how they explained it, that there's, piling, that there's this piling up of frustration and piling up of, of perhaps uh, some kind of tiredness with the, uh, with the constant uh, you know, austerity and, and with the constant uh, downgrading of, of standards and with con constant expectations from the, uh, from the ruling class towards the people to lower their expectations of life and just... Uh, uh, you know, get accustomed to being poor and their, their families and the next generations being poor. And I, I wonder, is there any, you know, is there a pinch of truth uh, in, in your opinion in those analyses that, you know, finally it erupted, it's something like that. But also, and, and I know that uh, because, you know, we spoke of camera before, where you said that there, there are many other elements in the build up to the January 6th 
situation that are very important to analyze, particularly today in the face of the most recent publications, or, or well, n not yet uh, out, those publications of uh, the journalists of the Washington Post. So please, go ahead and, and put us in pictures, so to say. I'll try. Thanks. Uh, the, the, there have been two, at least two, but two major, you can say, philosophies, trends, outlooks, in the American elites that go right back to the founding of the country and, and then the Civil War. Uh, one section of the capitalist elites believe that modern capitalism, modern you know, democracy as it's described in the US Constitution, um, and America as the beacon on the hill that spreads this around the world and America gets rich and everyone else gets rich and la-di-da. Uh, but they believe at the core of this, for America to succeed on the global stage, these elites believe there needs to be compromises with the American working class. Give them some of the plunder from the planet in order not to have too much domestic dissent and keep a stable political entity in the US. The other side, which has its roots, you can say, in the slave owners, and that's a culture that goes forward through the, you know, right into today, believe that the American working class should actually be just as exploited as foreign working class, or at least close to them anyway, maybe never quite as much. Of course, they're for the ultimate, you know, extreme exploitation of people of color in the United States. And the Democratic Party really isn't much different or hasn't been much different on that either. But even in terms of the white working class, and this is what when, when capitalism really starts to regain, when finance regains its strength after World War II, this is around 1980, uh, Reagan starts trashing the unions. And there's been a very concerted effort to break the back of American unions. There's been a concerted effort to uh, undermine and reduce the quality of public education in the United States, especially in the rural, rural areas. Uh, you know, something I, I saw a stat is something like thir over 30% of Americans are functionally illiterate. Um, there's two Americas, the, you know, the New Yorks and the LAs and the Chicago's and some of the other big cities. They're much closer to what a European or Canadian city might be. Rural America has been getting pushed further and further into poverty and backwardness. Uh, so the events of, of this contention between these two sections of the elites, this is what has to be understood. To under it's not about how many people feel disillusioned and disenfranchised amongst the ma masses of people, which is certainly an important factor. But there's a section of the elites that believe in America to maintain its dominance globally, to go back to our earlier theme, must start to become much more authoritarian domestically. Voices of dissent, the left, um, voices that are, uh, you know, policies that they consider pro-socialist, even, even Medicare for all, they don't want to let open up that Pandora's box. They believe that if the American people wake up and really understand how they've been dealt with, especially sections of the working class, they're gonna, they could get radicalized. And so they want to stop that from happening. And so these forces which are far right, and, and if you look at the Trump campaign, there's nothing new about Trump's politics. It's, it's a mirror image of Reagan. 
uh, from including the dog whistle racism, even the slogan, Make America Great Again, that was Reagan's slogan. Trump just copied it. Uh, so these things are not new, but what's changed is because the Democratic Party became uh, so distanced from the policies of this more social Democrat uh, FDR, the New Deal, and over the each, each different American Democratic presidency became more and more the tool of fi the financial sector, with Clinton being the most, and where he undid most of the regulation on the finance sector. Uh, the people have been seeing that the Democrats, not that they, you know, you know, the New Deal gave the Democrats the face of actually trying to have reforms within American capitalism. But since then, the Democratic Party has been more or less running away from them, and then with Clinton, really turned their back on them. And of course, Obama continued that. So you have a, a, a new mix of the forces, which is even traditional sections of the working class that never would have voted for the Republicans, now are. Uh, you also have this growth in re religious extremism, which has been nurtured by that fascist section of the American elite that put tons of money into it. You have the Koch brothers and, and others like Robert Mercer and Sheldon Adelson, but you have a whole section of right-wing billionaires very consciously and deliberately creating what amounts to a far-right movement because they want America, when it means be great again, it means America should domestically suppress dissent and globally use maximum force. And forget about this uh, negotiations with other countries. Forget about even the way Trump treated his allies in Europe. Uh, it, it, was, it was a show of force that this is what America, America's going to be the bully and you better live with it. Now, of course, they've always been the bully, but a bully without restraint. These forces are still there. So what happens on January 6th? The, it's the day of January 6th itself, I think, has been greatly exaggerated in the sense that a lot of bad things happened and police, a lot of police were beat up, the one woman was shot, uh, but there was no insurrection in the sense of that that crowd was going to take over the government. I mean, it's ridiculous. But what it was, and now it's becoming, I've been saying this from the beginning, and now there's some new reporting in the Washington Post, uh, a book that's coming out that's more or less saying the same thing. January 6th was meant to be the final act of a coup. In other words, the military was supposed to intervene to stop the, the storming of Capitol Hill, declare martial law, and use that as an excuse to actually call new elections. It was a crazy scheme. Uh, this is something that Flynn, uh, Trump's former national security advisor, uh, was, talked about publicly. Apparently, they talked about it openly in the White House. And now, recently, this new book from the Washington Post says General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, says this, this could be their Reichstag moment, where, they, you know, where the Nazis burned down the Reichstag as the excuse uh, to have the, pass a whole range of dictatorial powers. They, 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 Milley actually accuses Trump and, 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 by implication, the acting Secretary of Defense Miller uh, of planning a Reichstag moment. I mean, it's, it's you can see the extent of the crisis in the American elites. 
And the, uh, the, the point here that's most to get the significance of all this is an, an article by Admiral Stavridis, who used to be the supreme commander of NATO in Europe. And uh, he wrote an article in Time magazine where he talked about the infiltration of the armed forces by political right-wing fanatics and religious fanatics and talked about the extent to which they were involved in the events of January 6th. So, I mean, I can go on about this forever, and we don't have much time, but so just to put it quickly, at least in the eyes of Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the editorial board of the Financial Times that said a coup is in progress, they said this on January 4th, two days before, in the eyes of 10 former secretaries of defense who were actually organized by Cheney and his daughter Liz, they thought a real coup was in progress and came out publicly to denounce it and warn the military not to get involved. But the thing that's not being talked about, except by Admiral Stibertus openly, is the extent to which the far right has infiltrated the armed forces, both religious and political right, at not just low level, but at officer level, and even more senior. And just to throw another piece of this in, and this never gets talked about in mainstream press, the, the strength of the far right of the Catholic Church, Opus Dei, in American politics, including at least a few members of the American Supreme Court and some members at the, at the level of military leadership and certainly political leadership. So the far right in the United States, and, and, and Steve Bannon's one of the faces of it, but he's certainly not the only player here, although I don't think he's unimportant. Um, it's a real force, um, and that's where I think the Ameri some sections of the American left make a mistake, because at least for now, what the Democratic Party represents in terms of its entirety and sections of the elites and the financial sector don't want this far right coming to power. So it's, it's a very dangerous and complicated time in, in domestically and now throw the China equation in because this far right actually talks about winning a war with China. Okay, well, yeah, that, that sounds pretty terrifying. That's a, really, a very bleak picture of America. We imagine, and I think Brian is with me on this, that it was a bunch of lunatics just invaded the Capitol Hill, and that was it, and a lot of talk and a lot of theatrics, but as and you... There were many out, people carrying Eastern European flags there for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why, but we've seen people carrying Polish flags and Romanian flags. It's so terrible. Of course, the Romanians were there, and we had parliamentary elections in Romania where we had a newly formed political party, the Alliance for the Union of Romanians, that is a far-right political party that got 10% of the parliamentary seats at that, par uh, at that uh, point. And uh, they were there and they were bragging about supporting President uh, Donald Trump and being there and they posted, you know, pictures with them at that uh, particular, um, you know, when they stormed the Capitol. I don't know if they were inside actually, but they were there and, uh, you know, taking selfies with the Romanian flag. 
<laughs> there. That is very interesting indeed to see. And of course, we have in the Romanian parliament the praying group that is an informal organization gathering parliamentaries from all political uh, parties that have close ties to uh, religious organizations in the United States. And that is uh, almost never talked about. We had only one article by uh, feminists and uh, political scientists here in Romania, and that was pretty much it. Now, the problem can with- I, can, I, can, I, can I just add one thing quickly? Uh, it'll be fast. Because I think it's the same issue facing the peoples of Eastern Europe and everywhere else, including Canada and whatever. The, the, it's not as advanced here. Because of the climate crisis, because of the, uh, the global economy is also reaching limits of expansion and growth, that, that means stagnation. Uh, because there's so much uh, capital involved in useless speculation, and, and a lot of the financial structures are smoke and mirrors, because of the strength, and this never gets talked about, of the amount of money in the hands of organized crime and the effect that that has on politics, the society is really reaching a point here, but with climate being most significant, where the elites believe, and I think they're quite right, I think liberal democracy is reaching its end. I think that model has come, is coming to a conclusion, and now there are only two choices. Uh, a kind of right-wing authoritarianism, I don't know whether we use the word fascism or not, but I, I don't see why not, or there's going to be some kind of form of new forms of socialism that break through in different places. I don't see, honestly, right now, enough strength in the socialist forces. And it's a little, it is a little pessimistic or depressing. Yeah. But you, ne but you never know, because sometimes these things explode. And you don't, like, honestly, I don't think Bernie Sanders represented some full-fledged socialism or anything, but even he was a big surprise inside the United States. The places to watch are going to be India, Brazil, and maybe, uh, I don't know if anything's possible in China, but India and Brazil have the, have the size that if there's a breakthrough, it could have global significance. Okay, well, yeah, sure. Go ahead, Maria, please. Well, uh, this is a perfect segue to my uh, last question for you. What is the um, current situation with the left? I witnessed some uh, pretty disturbing YouTube wars between the Young Turks and Aaron Mate and the Grey Zone. And I found pretty disturbing the way the Young Turks and especially Anna Kasparian portrayed Aaron Mate as somebody who is paid by the Russians and who is paid by awful dictators. Because what is troubling for me as a leftist is that uh, when people, um, you know, uh, fight over sex work or prostitution, you have huge debates on that. You had have huge debates, especially and uh, even on the uh, leftists. You know, you have debates on the trans issues, but you have some sort of. Um, how should I put it, harmony, when it comes to U.S. Uh, foreign policies. Putin is a dictator, and 
there is very few people except the gray zone that are willing to challenge that. Uh, uh, then uh, Maduro is awful. Then U.S. has every right to intervene in Cuba and so on and so forth. And I want to ask, uh, what do you think about this worse and about this particular uh, characteristic of the left in terms of being very, how should I say, harmonious when it comes to U.S. foreign policy? I don't think that's true. If you, I mean, it depends what you're calling the left, but a majority, no, I, I would take an exception on Putin, which is too much of the left has bought into the demonization of Putin. That I agree with. Not all, but a lot. Um, on other issues, I don't think the left goes along with most U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the most of the left is uh, certainly was against the Iraq war and even on Cuba, uh, most, I think, of the left opposes any kind of intervention. Most of the left wants an end to the embargo and sanctions on Cuba. Uh, on Venezuela, a little bit mixed, but I would say still, even though much of the left has bought into the de demonization of uh, Chavez and then Maduro, the, they don't support any intervention. I, I don't think it's fair to say the left is all in harmony on U.S. foreign policy. If you, I don't include the Democratic Party in the left, certainly not the oh, leadership. Okay. I mean, that's not part of the left. So uh, Now, in terms of what you were talking about, the Young Turks and their, the attacks they've made on Aaron Maté, um, I know Aaron well. We worked together for a couple of years. Uh, Aaron's an excellent journalist and has always uh, followed the facts. And uh, he did something which I, I you know, he were, I was his editor at The Real News, and I, you know, encouraged him to do. Uh, we never believed anything the American intelligence would say on faith, uh, you know, which is what most of the media was doing. You know, American, American intelligence would say it had to be the Russians doing this and doing that, never providing any evidence. Uh, and all, you know, it's all innuendo. Uh, so uh, I, the Young Turks, uh, uh, yeah, I've never really critiqued them publicly, uh, only because uh, I don't want to, I don't like the amount of factional fighting in the left. Um, I don't like the uh, amount of name calling. And uh, on all sides, there's way too much uh, uh, factionalism and, and the biggest sectarianism, problem, sectarianism, yeah, sec let's be straightforward about it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't have any problem using that word, of yeah. course. Uh, and, uh, there's, there's a, such an urgent crying need for a broad front against the rise of fascism, against war, to deal with climate, um, to start reducing nuclear weapons, uh, you know, to have these kinds of fights. But let me just say, the Young Turks uh, maybe on some issues took progressive positions, um, but they have been mostly uh, a, a kind of appendage to the Democratic Party. And most importantly, I think this vilification of Aaron is not just unjustified, but the, uh, what's come out in the history of how they formed Young Turks, I mean, I always knew Young Turks got a lot of their uh, uh, viewership on YouTube because they would do shows about breasts. And they, you know, they would discuss breasts, they would do something uh, salacious. I had no idea it was as bad as I'm seeing now because other, some people are sh pulling up old clips of theirs. 
Uh, Young Turks is a for-profit organization. I think that's their, and that's, that's their main motive. And, and I don't care if they're for-profit and take progressive positions. But what they've been doing with Aaron is slandering him while he's been making legitimate critiques. Well, thanks. And uh, it's up to Bayan to have the last uh, question and maybe you to have some final remarks. Yeah, there, there's so many questions after everything I heard from you about January 6th and, you know, the events leading up to it and about the Catholic Church, which I think, you yeah, know, the Catholic Church in America, that was that was pretty. And, and you know, I just have to confess well, I was very I, ignorant I, about it. Uh, well, I did, a, I did a story, which I, I'm going to rerun part of it, <clears throat> about, I guess it's four years ago, maybe, uh, there was a meeting at the at the Vatican of something called the Family Foundation or the Family Something Foundation. Uh, their patron is uh, Burke, Cardinal Burke, who's uh, an opponent of Pope Francis. Uh, Bur Burke's an American cardinal who wants to overthrow Francis. And there's a whole movement in the Catholic Church to overthrow Francis. And uh, the Polish are part of that. I know. Yeah, very much so. And uh, they had they held a meeting at the Vatican. And Steve Bannon comes in by Zoom to give a speech to their meeting. And it's a whole vision of what's coming. And it's essentially a bloody struggle between Judeo-Christianity and Islamic, Islam and Chinese atheism. And he uses the word more than once. A bloody, a bloody struggle is coming. And this is the guy who then becomes the, you know, the national security advisor for Trump. So... They're real serious forces. We can't underestimate them. And I actually, if I am going to, you know, one critique I have of some sections of the left in the U.S. and elsewhere, you know, they go on about Trump's not so bad. You know, he's no different. No, there's a difference here. There's, it's not Trump. I use the phrase Trump was the buffoon tip of a fascist spear. There's a real fascist movement globally. And, 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 and we got to be very careful and serious who we ally with and who we, you know, uh, disparage and how we fight it because uh, yeah, right. the day of, day of reckoning is near. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with this perspective. That's what I wanted to say. And uh, I also think that there is, uh, you know, an amount of ignorance on the left regarding, you know, global politics, uh, whatever, domestic politics, and also there's a lot of ideological confusion. And I think that this is our biggest weakness, really. I mean, we can't just draw the fundamental bottom line and say that, look, this, those are the things that we're all for and that we want to, you know, advance and that we can go and do that together. And let's just discuss the 5, 10, 15, 25% of differences that we have a little later on, on a later stage, because right now we're actually facing what you said fascism or right-wing authoritarianism or some kind of you know digital fascism or whatever like there there are many speculations about what it's going to be like right and and all of those speculations are terrifying when you even in comparison with you know the matrix movie or something like that so yeah i think that uh, perhaps we could end on this uh well kind of appeal a positive appeal for a more unity on the left regardless of any differences of whatever we think about sex work or transgender issues or or you know or, or the nature of the Syrian regime in 1965, for that matter, okay? So, uh, yeah, I want to thank uh, our viewers, and I want to thank you, Paul, and you, Maria, for uh, being here. I uh, thank you for the insightful comments and uh, for... <clears throat> 
all the information. Uh, I hope to be able to continue this conversation on America, on Eastern Europe, and and on global politics and how it shapes up uh, our future. And uh, I would like to invite everyone to please go ahead and click the subscribe button, click the thumbs up button, click the uh, bell near the subscribe button, all of the buttons. And uh, please go ahead uh, and visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the barricade. And to the extent that you feel you can afford, make a donation, a monthly subscription, actually. Thanks so much again. Stay healthy and keep fighting. We'll be with you in one week time. Thanks. Thank you.